So we looked at this the last two weeks. A crowd had started to gather around Jesus. They had heard him talking about the kingdom of God, which was really hopeful and exciting and interesting to them. And it seems that whatever that is he's talking about, it has something to do with this with God kind of life, where this world, these lives, these bodies experience a life with God in the here and now. And that seems to have been really good news for the people who were waiting for that kind of experience. So this crowd starts to gather and they're paying attention to what Jesus is saying about this with God life, this kingdom of God promise that was breaking into the world. And as he sees the crowds, that's when he looks upon them and he says, if you have a poverty of spirit within you, something's missing in you or around you, I'm I'm talking about you right now. He says, if you are grieving or lamenting, if you haven't been able to keep your hands on something that you loved, whether it be a person or a dream, if there's some gaping void in your life, where you wish there wasn't one. He says, I'm talking about you right now. He says, are you one of the meek ones? You haven't had the power or the personality or the status to take for yourself the things that you want or need when everybody else seems to have whatever they want or need in a have and have not world. He says, I'm talking to you right now. He says, is there a hunger or a thirst for things to be made right in you or in the world? And is it sitting with you like an empty stomach? It's gnawing at you. He says, I'm talking to you right now. And he says, I call you blessed. He reaches for one of the biggest, strongest words in his tradition that he could use to describe the best possible kind of life. And he says, I call you blessed, which is absurd because there's nothing blessed about those experiences he's naming. It's absurd unless the next thing he says is also true when he says, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And it seems that what Jesus is saying is that the life that God is promising, which is with God, the life that we call the kingdom of God, that it's so good and so generous and so available right now that it can overcome or overwhelm any deficit of character or circumstance or spirituality. It's a big promise that Jesus is making, but he's not done because he seems to hint at other possibilities as he offers these blessings. Because then he talks about the merciful. He talks about the pure in heart. He talks about you being the kind of person who might be persecuted because of righteousness that your life might be actually converted into such a force of good, that your life might be rooted in such a substantial kind of power to push back against the disorder in the world, to push back against the darkness in the world, that all the powers that are disordering the world, all the powers of darkness might have to set their limited resources against you because you've actually become the kind of person who is pushing back against those things. This is profoundly hopeful, promising stuff that Jesus is talking about. And that's where we've been the last two weeks. Now, in this kingdom of God life that Jesus is describing, he doesn't just offer snapshots for our minds, uh, but he leads us into a life of practice, an embodied, lived out reality where we align the very like, minutes of our day, the very patterns of our day with the life of the kingdom of God. And we don't wanna just look at pictures of that kingdom, we wanna look at practices of that kingdom. And we don't wanna just look at them, we wanna practice the practices of the kingdom of God. So uh, after a couple of weeks of that picture, today we're going to look at a a practice of the kingdom of God. And the practice that we want to look at is prayer. Now, when I say prayer, I suspect there's a bunch of different reactions in the room. Uh, Some of you, like you just felt this little warm place in your soul just like light up a little bit. It's kind of fuzzy in there in a good way, right? It's like, I don't know, there's like hot chocolate gushing from a fountain in your chest and all is well. Like, that's great. That's some of you when I say the word prayer. It's very hopeful and exciting, right? 
Others, uh, maybe it's just kind of dried up. It just doesn't feel much of anything. Some of you are like, this is going to be one of the more boring nights at Southland City Church because that does not excite me, right? Some of you maybe are the people in our church who I love who would say something like, yeah, I don't really believe in God, but I do find myself praying sometimes. And then there are others that I know would say, oh man, I believe in God up and down, inside and out, but I cannot remember the last time that I really deeply prayed. I can think of people in the church who would say, um, you know, prayer is one of those things that seems to have gotten left behind in a period of faith deconstruction as the way that I thought the whole picture fit together broke down. And now some of the pieces are being put back together and that's been really good and exciting, but I'm not sure where, where the prayer piece fits or if it fits, right? Some of you, maybe you've done like the shopping list prayer, like the God do these things, fix these things prayer, right? I've done plenty of that kind of prayer in my life. But at some point it seemed like there wasn't really any strong correlation between the things that you asked for and the results that you saw, and it started raising questions for you like, does prayer work? Which of course raises questions about what it's for. Because the only way you can ask a meaningful question about whether something works is if you start by getting clear on what it's for, right? Uh, maybe you've done like buddy Jesus prayer where it kind of feels like you're carrying Jesus around in your back pocket for a little bit, and it's kind of fun having this kind of friendly dialogue thing going on with God for a little bit. Done plenty of that in my life, all for that. And yet, at some point, maybe it just felt like it's lacked depth. It, like you, you were looking for something more out of that experience and, and you couldn't find it there, and so maybe it isn't with you right now in your life. Uh, I'm just guessing there's a lot of different experiences and relationships to the word prayer in the room here. And I want to acknowledge that and, and honor all of that. Uh, and I, like, I respect all of that because I think all of that's very honest and really understandable for anyone who's moved toward the word prayer at some point in their life. So there's all of that. Um, but I, I want to observe too that like, if the kingdom of God life is something like the with God life, then like, we probably have to talk about the prayer thing. And I say that not just because it makes sense logically, uh, but because uh, if we're taking our cue from Jesus, as to what the with God life looks like, it's helpful to observe that prayer seems to be an impulse that's built into his movements. It seems to be the kind of thing that he sort of instinctually moves toward again and again. And if there's anything admirable or beautiful or good that you see in the life of Jesus and you think, I'd like to live like that, I'd like to be brave like that. I'd like to push back against what's broken like that. I would like to include people the way he included people. I would like to love people the way he loved people. It's probably helpful just to observe if there's something about his life we admire, let's ask how he got there and prayer seems to be part of how he got there. Let me make my case, for example, uh, from the book of Matthew chapter 14, from a couple of moments that are side by side here in the life of Jesus. Let's uh, look at the text. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. Got it. A uh, little background. Herod is a little puppet king who rules this part of the Roman Empire on behalf of the Romans. Uh, John is Jesus' cousin, his kin, his friend, part of his family. And John's not just Jesus' cousin. John is also one of the people who is heralding the very movement that Jesus is leading. So before even Jesus started doing what he was doing, John was out there saying, God's kingdom is coming. And then he saw Jesus and he said, that's what I was referring to. So John's heralding the movement that Jesus is leading. And John is Jesus' family, his friend. And John had seen that Herod was sleeping with Herod's brother's wife. And he said, don't do that. He said, this is not what we do. The Jewish people, we don't do that. It's not right. That's not the thing that you ought to be doing with your sex life. And uh, Herod had a problem with this. And so he had John arrested and bound and put in prison. Next slide. 
Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. Now on Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Next slide. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it, and then they went and told Jesus. Let's catch up with what just happened here. So Herod is sleeping with his brother's wife. John, the prophet, has said, that's not the way we do things, pal. And Herod doesn't like the criticism, so he puts John in prison. He can't kill the man because the crowds love John, and he doesn't want to incite a riot against his rule. So John's there in prison where he's hoping to just quietly snuff out the life and the message of John. And then uh, Herod's niece, the daughter of the woman he's sleeping with, his niece, dances in a way that's so provocative for all the drunken guests that he's pleased by what he sees and then tells the girl, you get anything you want. The girl's mother whispers in her ear and says, let's get the head of John the Baptist, the man who's criticizing the sexual relationship that I've been having with your uncle. They go down, they cut the guy's head off, they bring the head back into the dinner party where it's actually served on a silver platter. If you're thinking this is one of the more depraved moments in scripture, you're right. This is messed up. This is a dark, demented, evil moment in humanity. And Jesus hears about it. This is a moment where, like, Jesus is confronted not only that the world is, is disgusting and broken and evil, but that all of that evil has come against his kin, that it's come against his family member, his friend, one that he loved, and it's not just his friend, but the, this violence has come against the person who heralded the very moment that Jesus is, the movement that Jesus is leading, right? It's as if Jesus knows that the clouds of threat are circling closer and closer around him and his own work in the world. This is an incredibly dark dark moment for Jesus. It's personal. It's violent. It's depraved. And he has a reaction to it. It's this. Jesus heard what had happened, and he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Now, I don't know what your reaction is when you're confronted with whatever is dark or depraved or broken out there in the world, or when the things that are dark and depraved and broken in the world, when they come at you, I don't know what your reaction is. I know mine is usually Netflix. Just a little bit of entertainment, a little bit of distraction. Let's just kind of turn down the volume on that stuff because it's unpleasant. And I would like to think about other things. Jesus, his, his impulse, his instinct in this moment is to go to a solitary place where, as I'll show you in a moment, I, th I think the argument is clear in scripture. This is a place of prayer for Jesus. It's his instinct when he's at the darkest, sort of most violent moment there. Now, the next thing that happens is also curious. Uh, he's going by boat to this private solitary place, and then we read, hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. You might ask, where does that compassion come from? Like, what is it that fuels that for a man who is probably scared, sad, angry, maybe even confused, and yet he sees these crowds that have come for him when he was trying to get away from them, and compassion wells up inside him. And he uh, heals their sick, and then as evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Well, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. 
Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. And then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people, and they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Now, before we go to the next slide, what do you do in this moment? Jesus has just gone from an incredibly private and personal sense of loss, fear, and darkness, and he's been brought into a moment of incredible public success. Other moments where Jesus does miracles like this in the Gospels, the crowds, they rally. They want to make him their king. They want to hoist him on their shoulders like Team Jesus, right? Like, so he's gone from a moment of incredible personal devastation to a moment of incredible public success. What's your instinct when everything is in your favor? I know mine is like, ride that wave a little longer, right? Like one or two more accolades my way. Like, let's keep this thing going, but watch Jesus here. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Now, I've been drawn to this passage for a long time in my life because of the polarity in it. Like in just a few sentences, you have this incredible sort of sweep of human experience in Jesus' life. Devastation and success. Something very uh, personal and private and something very public, all going on in this compressed little moment of narrative in Matthew's gospel. And I've just been struck that at the darkest sort of lowest moment and at the kind of highest, most successful moment, he seems to have this same counterintuitive instinct which is to find a quiet, private, solitary place and to enter into this practice of prayer that seems to have been really central to his with God life, the kingdom life that he's living. Uh, I raise this uh, because I think prayer can be preached as like an obligation, like prayer is something that good Christians do. I gather a lot of us, that just isn't a very useful motivation anymore. I think we need something um, deeper, uh, a more existential reason to bring that practice into our lives that are far too busy and distracted. And it won't do to just say, oh, that's what a good Christian does. I think we need to be reminded there's something probably far deeper at stake. And I look at the life of Jesus and I look at his capacity to enter into these deep, dark moments and these moments of incredible public success. And I look at how compassion just flows out of him, even though his life is being tested in every kind of way and the crowds want more and more. And I ask myself, how is that kind of life lived? And then I see these little sentences that just sort of get wedged in there again and again in the gospel accounts that Jesus tends to have this incredibly robust practice of prayer. And it, it, it makes me curious about that. It makes me wonder, like, what was that doing in him and for him? It makes me wonder what I've missed in my own experiences of prayer. Was there something at stake there, something on offer there that I didn't even have eyes to see or appreciate? It makes me think of, uh, metaphors of images that help me understand the sort of unseen things that could happen in prayer. Like, for example, uh, the Busendorfer. Anybody ever heard of a Busendorfer? Uh, a Busendorfer is a piano company couple. Yeah, my man. Dwayne's got the... Dwayne knows where I'm going. Don't preach my sermon, Dwayne. <laughs> Dang it. Uh, yeah, Dwayne knows exactly what's up. Busendorfer is an Austrian piano company that began in 1828. You should probably say Busendorfer on three because I usually make you say Hebrew and Greek. But let's say some, some, some Busendorfer on three. One, two, three. Busendorfer, yeah, and Dwayne's exactly right. So Busendorfer pianos can cost something like $100,000 to $300,000 for a Busendorfer grand piano. Side note, one day I was in the youth symphony at IUSB 
which just confirmed that I was as cool as you thought I was. I was in the youth symphony uh, in high school, or middle school maybe, at IUSB, and I was playing trumpet. It was right at the center, right there in the back of the little youth symphony orchestra there on stage. And IUSB had, hopefully still has, a Busendorfer grand piano, and I knew how special these things were, and we're out there, and the, the stagehand wheels the Busendorfer out to the front of the stage so we can do this piano concerto thing, and they lift the big, heavy lid on this nine-foot concert brand Busendorfer piano, right? And they, they pull the arm up to hold the lid up, but they don't get it seated quite right in the spot where the leg goes into the lid, and the thing slammed down, and the leg snapped out of the piano, and there was nothing we could do. We just had to go on the concert. Everybody had the exact same reaction that you had, and they didn't even know how much it cost, but now you do, and you're in on this with me, right? So the, the thing about Busendorfers is not only do they make a generally great piano, but there's a particular thing that Dwayne mentioned that makes a Busendorfer so special, which is that Busendorfer was wrestling with the same thing that every piano maker is wrestling with, which is how do you make sure that all of the notes sound? How do you make sure that all of the notes fully speak? on the piano. Now, like if you hit a note on a piano, uh, what happens is not only does that string vibrate, not only does the air around that string vibrate, but actually any other string in that piano that's at the right interval from the length and the frequency of that string also resonates, which is why one note can sound so full on a big old grand piano, right? These are resonant frequencies. Well, the problem, of course, is if, if you hit a key in the middle of the piano, then it's surrounded on the left and the right with all these other strings that would have resonant frequencies that would also sound out and give it its full voice, right? But uh, what about the lowest notes and the highest notes? Well, Busendorfer had an idea. So they take a, a standard 88-key piano, like this keyboard right here, and they extended it uh, at both ends. And so if you get to the end of the standard 88 keys on either end of a Busendorfer piano, the colors invert, and the white keys are black and the black keys are white, and they added extra notes, so you get something like 96 keys in a Busendorfer grand piano. And the point is for there to be like a resonance opportunity for the lowest and the highest things that want to sound out of that piano. When I look at Matthew 14, one of the things I suspect going on is that Jesus uh, turned to prayer as a resonance chamber for the lowest and the highest things in his life. And that you and I, like uh, the lowest and the highest things come at us in life and we move on very quickly from them instead of like fully living in them. And I wonder uh, to begin with if prayer is inviting us to find a resonance for even the lowest and the highest things in our life. You might think, well, why would you want the lowest things to resonate? Well, that's a whole other sermon for a whole other day probably, but uh, this particular tradition seems to think that there are treasures waiting for us in every kind of experience. This tradition, this Jesus tradition seems to understand that the lowest and the highest and everything in between, that the trick is to be with all of it, to name all of it, to own all of it in this with God life. And Jesus seems to find a resonance in those prayer experiences when the rest of us, I think, might want to turn down the volume on some things and turn up the volume on others, he turns to a resonance experience in these prayer moments. Now, uh, when we think about like, what Jesus' prayer life would have been like, we can also just sort of do some good hypothesizing together, because Jesus is a good Jewish man from the first century, and so we can assume that Jesus knows the things that a good Jewish man in the first century would know, that Jesus would have been trained up in the religious experience of a good first century Jewish man or woman, and what we know about any good Jew at that time is they actually had a whole repertoire of prayer. They had this vast sort of body of language and modes of expression for prayer, and it's called the Psalms. It's a, it's a book, a collection of like 150 different 
prayers. And you can bet that Jesus would have been deeply immersed in these 150 prayers. You can bet that he would have known them from heart, inside and out. You can bet that he would have, along with the other members of his synagogue community or there at the temple during high holy days, uh, seen those prayers a part of the community's uh, practice together as they moved toward their experience of God. So he would have had that in his repertoire. And so like, if we want to think about how to pray like Jesus prayed, you could start there and assume that he prayed in the way that the Psalms taught him to pray. So let's observe uh, just like a really quick flyover what's in the contour of the Psalms. And we looked at this before as a community, but it's just helpful to like get our hands on what Jesus would have been working with, right? So a hundred years ago, there's a Bible scholar named Gunkel who's German, which makes sense because Bible scholars in Germany are like drunk people at Notre Dame tailgates. They're everywhere. Uh, There's a lot of German Bible scholars out there in the world. Gunkel a hundred years ago is a Bible scholar in Germany and Gunkel looks at the Psalms And he sees in the Psalms that over these 150 different prayers, there's basically three different modalities of prayer. There's basically three different kinds of things being expressed. He says that in a number of Psalms, the thing that's being expressed is praise, which is just like, God, you're great. Like, everything's the way it ought to be. You're the way you ought to be. My life's the way it ought to be. God, you're great. He says there's psalms of praise. He says there's other kinds of Psalms that are similar to praise, but they're not quite the same. They're Psalms of thanksgiving. He says, Psalms of thanksgiving are when the the psalmist cries out, God, you're great because you did something for me. You came through for me. I needed something. I was lost, now I'm found. I was afraid, now I'm brave. I was being tossed about on the open water and now I'm back on shore. I was in prison and now I'm free. God, I cried out and you did something for me. Psalms of thanksgiving are prevalent in that book that we call the Psalms. And then he says there's a third uh, modality of prayer that he sees. There are a third kind of genre for these poems, these prayers, and that's lament. These are the prayers that you weren't sure you were allowed to pray. (laughs) These are the prayers that groan and ache and bleed. These are the prayers that sometimes sound highly irreverent, if not altogether atheistic. These are the prayers that say things like, God, I thought you were good, but frankly, right now, you don't seem that good. These are the prayers that say, God, you've been good to other people, but you're not good to me. These are the prayers that say, God, I think you need uh, some help managing the universe because right now I see signs of mismanagement because there's all of these wicked, evil people around me and they seem to be rewarded for their wickedness and I'm trying to live an upright life and nothing is working out for me and all of that's your problem because it seems to violate your character. So why don't you show up and do something about it? These are the Psalms of Lament that Gunkel observes. Now, about 100 years later, another scholar comes along named Walter Brueggemann, and he builds on Gunkel's work. Gunkel sort of paints these as static things, and you have three kinds of psalms, and they're all kind of there, and they're kind of static. But then Brueggemann comes along uh, a while later, and he observes these things are actually all in motion. They all actually kind of talk to each other. He reorders them, and he observes something about what they're naming in the experience of being human, in the experience of the Israelites, and their spirituality. And he says that psalms of praise describe the experience of orientation. Like you know where, what's up, what's down, what's left, what's right. You know where you fit in and where God fits in. This is when you're not lost at all. You feel like quite found and things are quite good. But Brueggemann observes that whether you're uh, an ancient Israelite or a modern human being, periods of orientation are almost always followed by periods of disorientation. Like something breaks. Your marriage breaks. Your family breaks. The world breaks. The headlines are violent. Uh, God isn't working the way you thought God was supposed to work or prayer isn't working the way you thought prayer was supposed to work. And this takes you from an orientation in the world to a disorientation. All of a sudden, you feel a little lost in things. 
And Brueggemann says, periods of disorientation then often give way to a period of new orientation, like a fresh vista where you finally find yourself again. And you say, God, like I was in that period where I was lost and things were lost and everything was breaking and you seemed uh, far away or like you were doing things wrong. But now, now I see that like that was part of a journey that I'm walking and I'm in a new place now things are being put back together and I'm really grateful. There's a freshness, there's a newness to that. And then Brueggemann observes that this whole thing can repeat itself again and again, that every new orientation, every circumstance that one day you woke up and you said, God, thank you for bringing me into this circumstance, eventually becomes the circumstance you take for granted. And it's just your, your, your every day, right? You're just kind of living in it, which brings you back to orientation and sets you up for a whole new experience of disorientation or lament or lostness. A uh, side note, by the way, uh, Gunkel and Brueggemann and others observed that of the three kinds of psalms, of the three kinds of prayers in the scripture, the most common is actually lament. Like the most, the most natural mode of prayer in the scriptures is the kind of prayer that most of our churches have never been comfortable with. <laughs> the ones that bleed and breathe out threat against God and wonder why he hasn't been the way that he was supposed to be. Uh, so Brueggemann observes that all of this is going on in the Psalms on top of Gunkel's work. The reason I, I raise that is um, it strikes me that Jesus' knowledge of prayer would have known that everything belongs in prayer. Everything. I know people who have stopped praying when God seemed to let them down, and it's not that they didn't want to pray. I actually think it's because they weren't sure they were allowed to pray the prayers that were actually being birthed in their chest in those moments of frustration or anger or heartbreak or lostness. They weren't sure those prayers belonged and so they just stopped praying at the very moment when their soul was like desperate for some kind of resonance chamber for the darkest, lowest things that they were experiencing in those moments there, right? And I know others of us who find ourselves in seasons where things are good and things are fine and then wonder what, what we would need prayer for because we don't need God to fix anything. So, so what else is there to pray about? But Jesus, it seems, would have known that like everything, everything belongs in these experiences of prayer. And I, I raise that for this community to say that if, if we will take seriously the kingdom of God, if we'll take Jesus up on the good news of the with God kind of life, I don't think we should shy away from the experience of prayer. I think we should be pretty robust about it. Not out of obligation, not because it's what good Christians do, but because there's something essential to the life of a soul that wants to move through the world the way that we are actually meant to move through the world. Now, uh, it's interesting, uh, Jesus' friends, his disciples, they would have been trained up on the same prayer book that Jesus was trained up on because his original disciples were all Jewish. They would have had the same synagogue experiences. They would have heard the same prayers that Jesus had heard. But they do come to Jesus and they ask him this question. It seems that his followers, his friends, saw in his own life something so worthwhile, something so good or desirable that they wanted to be a part of that. They wanted it for their lives. So, so they see something so good there and though they knew the same prayer book that Jesus was working with, they come to Jesus and they say, teach us to pray. Like, can you, can you teach us that move that you seem to turn to again and again? And it's in response to that uh, like beautifully sincere desire among his friends that they would want to bring into their lives the same patterns that Jesus has in his own. It's in response to that request from his friends that Jesus gives them some words 
that for you tonight might feel new and interesting or really, really tired or worn out or attached to a religious experience that you're trying to get away from or really grounding and wonderful. I don't know. These are words that are familiar to most in the room, but I want to do all that work up to this moment to capture the context again. When Jesus says, when you pray, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is sometimes called the Lord's Prayer. Uh, some of you grew up in traditions that warn that it's dangerous to repeat written prayers. Others grew up in traditions where you were told to or made to pray this prayer again and again. Some find these words super inspiring and hopeful. Others feel some distance from them. But I just want to observe, if you sort of try to clear some of that baggage off the table and get back to where this comes from, this is Jesus with his friends, and they've seen in him the kind of life they find worth leaving everything behind to be a part of, and they see prayer in his own life as something so instrumental or central to how he lives that life that they want to be doing the same kind of thing, and they say, well, you teach us how to do it, and then he gives them these words. So I don't want to uh, teach any more on this, but rather I want to invite us to try this tonight, uh, sort of uh, um, an open, sort of deep breathing meditation on this prayer that Jesus teaches his friends to pray. So that's, uh, that's what we're going to do next. If you want to join me, that's great. If prayer is not a word that works for you tonight, totally understand that. Uh, you might see this as a useful meditation with uh, some guided sort of prompts, right? Even just to think about what these concepts mean might be a helpful thing for people in the room that don't find prayer to be a useful word. If God's not a word that works for you, you might be able to meet me halfway. And if there's anything in you that suspects that there's anything more than meets the eye, that reality is more than the sum of the material parts that we see, you could maybe sort of think about this as a way of moving toward whatever that is that's more than the sum of these parts. Uh, but I just wanna lead us in a sort of guided, reflective prayer uh, on these words that Jesus gives us now. And if you want to, uh, join me. Uh, if it helps, you might want to put your feet flat on the floor. You might want to close your eyes. And uh, I'll lead us in this in a moment. But first, uh, if you'd like, take a deep breath. Maybe a couple of those. And now let us pray as Jesus taught us to pray. He said you could begin, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus suggests that the ground of all being, that which lends its life and energy to everything that we see, that which is the first cause of every quark and atom, every molecule, that which lends its being to trees and wind and rivers, that which gives life to our bodies, that which calls forth our stories. He says, when you pray, you might address that reality as our Father. 
that that reality is not impersonal, but profoundly personal and relational. And that like any good father, that reality wishes for our good, wants to see us grow up, wants to see us grow into ourselves. He says, when you pray, you might approach that reality like a beloved daughter or son. And as you do that, you might recognize the weight, the holiness, the sacredness of that presence. He says, when you pray, you could pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Does that stir up anything in you? Does it bring to mind any ideas or images? Any feelings? Any longings? Does it meet you on the surface? Does it resonate deep within? Jesus says, when you pray, you may begin, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus believes that God's kingdom is so good and generous and available that it can overcome or overwhelm any deficit of character or circumstance or spirituality. He says the world that is breaking, the world that is falling apart is not the final word, it is not the whole story, and that there is a with God life available in the here and now that brings with it peace and justice and wholeness and healing. And he invites us to know the longing in our souls for that reality and to speak that longing right now. I think he knows that there are places within us or around us that are a far cry from that promise. And he invites us to not grow cynical, but to keep hoping and to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Does this bring to mind any particular thing for you? A memory, a relationship, an experience, something that isn't the way it ought to be, that isn't the way you long for it to be? Is it something hurting in your neighborhood or your home or your heart? And is Jesus teaching us to bring that to this prayer as we pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is there a vision of what could be? Is there a dream of what wants to be? Of greater flourishing and a harmony? And is Jesus teaching you to bring that into your prayer as you pray? 
Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus teaches us to pray, give us today our daily bread. Some of us gave up on asking for what we need because too often we didn't have what we needed. And maybe Jesus is asking us to renew our hope and ask again. Others of us gave up on asking for what we need because we have more than we need. But maybe this prayer invites us to recognize where every good thing comes from. Is there anything you need to ask for? Jesus teaches us to pray, give us today our daily bread. He says that we should pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Just as he's banking on God, a good and loving father, he's banking on God, a generous forgiver. A God who overlooks whatever deficit we may have brought to the table. A God who freely and joyfully forgives. And he suggests it's this simple to merely ask God, forgive us our debts. But then I think Jesus knows something that we have forgotten, which is that forgiveness is a flow. It's a gift that we are not here to contain. And that even as we know the generous, gracious kindness of God, we are meant to share that with others. Perhaps that flowing current of forgiveness has gotten stopped up in our lives and maybe something about this prayer would begin to open it again. As we consider those that we have held a grudge against, those that we have held on the hook, Jesus invites us to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then Jesus says, you should pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is one of those places where the history of translation gets a little goofy. Uh, it might be better rendered, carry us away from temptation and deliver us from the evil one. Too many of us may have simply made peace with the fact that gravity will pull us towards sin that gravity will pull the world toward evil, that entropy is the final word of the day. Maybe too many of us have made peace with that, have resigned ourselves to it. And Jesus invites us to not be so cynical about our lives and our world, but to hope and to strive and to ask God to lend his energy to our efforts to carry us in the opposite direction that there is an alternative movement available in the world as God's kingdom breaks forth and it carries us away from sin toward wholeness, away from brokenness toward healing. And he teaches us to pray in a way that aligns our hearts with that current. God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. 
Is there any part of your soul that has not given up the fight for your life or for the world that wants to keep striving for the life of God's kingdom and is delighted to find out that you are not on your own, that you are not here to generate that current, but that you simply need surrender to it, that God would walk with you away from what is broken toward what is good. Now let's put these words on our lips one more time as we pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory now and forever. Amen. Grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.